0: Welcome to the Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal is to present you with a broad scope of value based care issues. Today, we are beginning a new series devoted to wraparound services that benefit patients with GI disorders. We will be doing three podcasts in this series, beginning with today's show, which is dedicated to behavioral health issues. The other two will be focused on nutritional issues and sleep disorders that interfere with circadian rhythms. Our guest is Dr. Lori Kiefer, professor of medicine and psychiatry at Mount Sinai's ICANN School of Medicine. She is a GI psychologist and is co-founder of Trellis Health, a telehealth-based multidisciplinary care management platform providing access to expert-driven personalized care complex chronic conditions like IBD. Lori is a health psychologist specializing in the integration of behavioral health care into GI settings with a broader passion for the emerging field of psychogastroenterology. Her main focus is inflammatory bowel disease, so she's going to be perfect for our show today. She has oversight of the psychobehavioral research of a large over 12,000 patient population of IBD patients at Mount Sinai, where she addresses the needs of young adults with IBD and how best to personalize self management interventions using health technology. She's also the inventor of the GRIT IBD method, which risk stratifies and elevates psychosocial care among IBD patients those with the poorest outcomes. It is this technology that led to the formation of Trellis Health, which she co-founded with Dr. Marla Dubinsky. Welcome to the show, Lori.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kay. This is really exciting to be able to share my passion.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, you know what, I plan on that. Um, I love passionate passionate, uh, guests for the show. So I'm gonna start out by just giving you an opportunity to tell the listeners about your career. How did you get to where you are now? I'm happy to note that you spent much of your training right here in Chicago at Northwestern and at Rush, but tell the listeners how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, I always joke, it's both accidental and intentional at the same time. So, you know, I've always, even since I've been a little girl, been really fascinated with the mind-body connection. And um, so when I started in graduate school and was first sort of exposed to the brain-gut connection, it was really a perfect um, way for me to to get some depth of, of knowledge around, you know, that um, issue, And um, my mentor in graduate school was an expert in behavioral intervention science, you know, so sort of being able to apply behavioral techniques to problems. And at the time, we didn't really do that so much to medical conditions, right? We were still sort of really thinking about um, problems like worry and depression and anxiety. So that was where I got my start. You know, as a health psychologist, we do residencies and postdocs. And I happened to be matched to um, Rush Medical Center there in in Chicago for one of, at the time, really one of the few health psych programs. You know, we didn't really have health psychologists yet in the country. And so there I was exposed to all sorts of ways in which he took that behavioral intervention science and applied it to chronic diseases. Um, And for me, it was a no brainer, right? Because I was already excited about the brain and the gut. So that was sort of led me to this, to this GI psych concept Um, initially started more in the IBS space, honestly. Um, it was an easier sell, right? At the time, this was in the early 2000s, where our treatments for IBD were still, you know, kind of um, focused on, you know, our time to flare, flare versus remission. Um, you know, if you had symptoms, it was driven by inflammation. So I spent a lot of time more in the development of these brain-gut behavior therapies. Um, my first NIH grant was actually in hypnotherapy, mm. <laughs> um, applying it to inflammatory bowel disease. Disease, um, being able to show that we sort of had, we could prolong clinical symptom remission um, in people who underwent a brain gut intervention. So that was sort of the beginning of that excitement I had in self-management interventions in IBD.
0: I always smile a little bit and, and smirk when I think about the fact that my first exposure to inflammatory bowel disease as a medical student back in the 70s was in my psychiatry rotation.
1: Really, yeah. So,
0: so at that point, they were <laughs> they, they were thinking this was a psychosomatic illness, and in many ways, they're not wrong because the the, the behavioral issues can trigger horrible flares of uh, disease. I've I've taken care of patients for the course of my career that went into major flares following major
1: you know emotional
0: occurrences in their life. So
1: absolutely, and and you know now we have that sort of more science showing sort of the inflammatory immune pathway of mental health conditions too, right? And so things like depression and anxiety often sit on the same pathways as, you know, all sort of colitis and Crohn's. So now it makes so much more sense. Um, but yeah, at the time, you know, it, it was very psychosomatic
0: based. Yeah, yeah. But the gut-brain axis is a new term today yes. that is really getting a lot of press. How did you wind up in IBD? You said you you started more with IBS, which which makes sense. But how did you migrate so heavily into IBD?
1: Yeah, you know, so I I started to sort of see IBD patients as a as a fellow and early faculty at Rush and. Um, realized that a lot of the same principles applied, even though you had this added layer, right, of disease severity and biologic medication and and all that. And, and I thought, you know, this is the quintessential um, health psych condition, really, because you have very clear biological and, and physiological um, pathways. You have inflammation, you have immune function, um, which in and of itself is related to stress. And then, You have these young people often who are being told they have to change their lives and that requires behavior change, right? No matter what we do, there's no pill for getting somebody to actually make a change in their lifestyle. And so it really was an area that hadn't really been thought of in health psychology necessarily. But really, if you think of all the principles of health psychology around applying behavior change to medical conditions, it was like... Perfect. With me, anything I know more about, I get more excited about. For me, it's about the depth of knowledge, and so the the other thing that appealed was really digging deep into a single condition or you know a set of conditions, really understanding the patient experience, and then designing tools for people to to, to thrive.
0: Well, we've definitely noticed in our Sonar work the increased cost of care in Mm -hmm. patients who have uh, behavioral health issues, and specifically those that are having active symptoms, not necessarily those who just have a a past history of it, but those who have active symptoms. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, and you developed the GRIT IBD method. Give Give us some good detail on what this method is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So GRIT stands for Gaining Resilience Through Transitions, And the idea really kind of came from, um, you know, my observations clinically, but also, you know, um, research-wise to really look at people with inflammatory bowel disease and seeing like, are the people that actually have terrible disease, but still manage to like get up with a smile on their face every day and go to work, right? Um, And who are the people who, you know, have terrible disease, or, or maybe they don't even have that terrible a disease, but have just sort of become, you know, crushed by their diagnosis. And I really saw this sort of two to three different phenotypes of people and really thought about how can we capture those personal characteristics, those strengths or limitations that people have well before they go on to develop depression and anxiety, right? Can I intervene at this much earlier point? And so the framework of resilience actually comes from the world of positive psychology, which is you know, this idea of why do people flourish? Why do people thrive? How do people bounce back despite adversity? And again, IBD is a perfect example of a adverse experience that happens to somebody often early in their life before they've had any real adversity that they've had to work with. And, um, you know, what I, my science kind of showed over the years, I've been building this case almost um, that, you know, what do people actually need to have in place before we ask them to do anything related to their disease management? So those characteristics kind of formed this, what we call resilience five as part of the grit method, disease acceptance, right? So recognizing that you have the condition, That it's lifelong, that you're even if you don't approve of it or you feel bad that you have it, that you still have to deal with it. Right. And so many of the interventions we've had to develop as part of the GRIT method focus on building that acceptance. The other is optimism. We know it's more than just glass half empty, half full. It's how do you attribute the causes of good and bad events in your life? And so how do we get people to cognitively reset the way they're interpreting their disease so that they're willing to work towards making their lives better instead of just viewing it as devastating and personal and pervasive? We've seen um, that uh, the ability to self-regulate you know, we we I know we've talked in the past about our dogs, right? But our dogs, you know, have to figure out strategies to be able to regulate um, situations that are not comfortable or that they're not sure about, right? And that might be that they sit down and they wait for commands. <laughs> but you know, how do we teach people to self-regulate these uncomfortable symptoms, these uncomfortable procedures? How do you even wait for the start of a medication with your company while you're waiting for your payer to approve? How do you tolerate that anxiety of I need to start a drug now and I have to wait a month before I can get it on. You know, so those are all skills that people have to have. Social support is really critical to um, managing and buffering against stress, as well as, you know, people need people when they have a adversity in their lives. And then finally, the fifth of the resilience characteristics as part of the grit method is that self efficacy, self-confidence, right? So I'm confident that I can learn whatever I have to learn. If I need to learn to swallow a pill, if I need to learn a new way to do yoga, because I have an ostomy bag, I can do it. I can, someone can teach me to do it and I can do it and my life can move on from it. I'm, I'm confident in that. And so the grit method really focuses on out of the gate Do you have what it takes (laughs) to be able to do what is asked of you over your lifetime, over the course of your disease, no matter what changes you might go through in your life? And that goes back to that, you know, gaining, using transitions in care as an opportunity to build skills and resilience.
0: You know, listening to you um, describe the grit method. It makes me think that just about every patient with IBD ought to have that presented to them early Mm -hmm. in the course of their disease. Yes. Um, You know, one of my observations in starting sonar was that there were so many patients who just accepted the condition Mm -hmm. but didn't recognize when when their condition was deteriorating. How does that fit into your your grit that, methodology?
1: That's 100% right. So that is that, you know, settling for conditions and, you know, the flip side of acceptance is avoidance. And so when we don't accept, like really accept, not just like, yes, I know, checkbox, I have a condition, but really accept that we are, we have to pay attention to ourselves. Um, a lot of patients will avoid reaching out to their providers. They, they avoid going in for their procedures. They don't want to deal with it because they don't accept it. And they they, they conflate acceptance with approval. And I really try to make that point of you don't have to approve of it. You don't have to like it, but if you're having more symptoms, it's your responsibility to let your doctor know, right. To reach out to people and let them help you or to, to treat you. You don't have to settle for debilitating symptoms. Right. And a lot of times people settle because they're avoiding learning more about what, what's possible. They're afraid. And, and that's where that acceptance really, I mean, I, I would say starting there is so critical in any, at the point of diagnosis.
0: Very interesting. Tell us, Lori, about Trellis Health. So here's your opportunity. All right, kiddo. <laughs> My shameless chance. plug, right? <laughs> oh, this is your right, your shameless plug for your company. <laughs>
1: So, you know, I, so as you know, I'm at Mount Sinai and, um, you know, even though I've been doing this work for 20, 25 years, looking at, you know, the grit method and all of that, that really kind of came to fruition at Mount Sinai in our IBD home, right? And we were able to show reductions in, when when people had those resilience five behaviors um, and we worked towards getting them to that point, we saw dramatic reductions as you have seen in sonar right with just a little bit of extra support you can move the needle on unplanned care ED visits hospitalizations we such improvements in opioid use steroid use all of that so Mount Sinai kind of came to, to Dr. Dubinsky and I and said, you know, this is like your outcomes are like really amazing. Is there an opportunity here to, you know, scale this, can, you know, um, through technology or, you know, how, how do we make sure that people that live in, you know, New Jersey <laughs> across the bridge that don't can't come to Mount Sinai can still access this amazing opportunity, right? That get this wraparound care. And so that Mount Sinai kind of invested. In um, us to set up um, and accelerate a way of commercializing this grit method, which ended up um, becoming the basis of Trellis. So, the grit method was licensed to Trellis um, for IBD, as well as, you know, we're only in IBD right now, but, you know, obviously thinking about the applicability to several other chronic conditions, right? I mean, especially this uh, Resilience 5 challenge. Um, and so from there, um, so Mount Sinai was an investor, and then we were able to secure funding through the London Stock Exchange as well. Um, so the alternative investment market and be able to sort of spend the last two years Um, building the technology to deliver that that grit method. Um, And it's different. You know, one of the things I've learned as a new, and I know you and I have talked about this, sort of an entrepreneur, being from a clinician to being an entrepreneur, right? Is to sort of begin to think about How do you keep your science stable, your methodology, your beliefs, your philosophy, but figure out a way to deliver it in a way that patients can access it and um, receive those services? So we have a licensed care team um, that's sort of behind the scenes because we are a wellness company. So we're not providing care. We're not disintermediating care for people with gastrointestinal conditions. Um, But that team is really helping decide and assessing where somebody is in their resilience journey and what skills they may need, what symptoms they may um, struggle with and putting together a personalized roadmap. And so our members basically come into the platform, they get their um, they do an assessment that we've really perfected more so from trellis than even we did at the Sinai IBD center. And then they get their customized roadmap and then they have access to a couple different options. They can do, there's tons of digital content, most of which was developed by me or grad students of mine, um, based on years and years of experience treating these, treating patients with this condition they can get access to um, a variety of nutritional content. Again, not to just download a nutrition app because they want to try low FODMAPs, but curated nutritional content chosen by a dietitian for their particular needs. Is we do not, what we don't want is people spinning their wheels. And you know, our, so many of our IBD patients are desperate for, for treatment. And we don't want to take advantage of that desperation and give them things that aren't going to help them. And they also get a variety of self-regulatory techniques. So obviously there's a a, a playlist, if you will, of relaxation and um, coping statements and grounding exercises that they can access in real time at the doctor's office, that type of thing. So that's what they can kind of do on their own, but we don't want to separate out the human touch because that's still really important. That social support piece, that ability to guide people. So our members also work with a coach. They have unlimited coaching, Um, whether that's secure messaging, video, telehealth. They can, you know, we're sort of still learning um, as a company what people want and how they wanted that information done. They get unlimited visits with a IBD dietitian. Um, and they Unlim- are unlimited. unlimited yep okay um because you know again access is such a critical piece of this right mm-hmm. um, and then they also can um, have unlimited visits as needed you know what they perceive to be needed with a nurse educator so you know again we're we're really trying to we're trying to support the patients but we're also trying to support the providers right so that you as a provider you know our provider groups that maybe don't have these services, can offload some of that disease mm-hmm. education and you know why am i why was i prescribed this medication doesn't it cause cancer and you know all of those things so um yeah so the members get that as well and they're sort of participating in the programming um, pretty intensively for three to six months. And then from there, we kind of step them down, keep them engaged, keep giving them new tools and contents, but we've really, we're really facilitating behavior change. So this isn't like you have to do this. We're not just, you know, sending them information that doesn't make sense. It's very, it's very, very curated. And, um, Yeah, and we're right now. What they're it's a it's a subscription model direct to consumer. So forty nine dollars a month will get you that. (laughs)
0: Okay, Uh, that was one of my questions. But how do you how does a patient hear about this? How does a patient Uh access it? Is it something that you're distributing through GI practices? How are you getting your message out to the consumer other than from this podcast?
1: Yes, that's a great question. So, you know, we, we have a couple different channels. Um, because we have been direct to consumer now for about three weeks, um, we are just seeing people that basically hear about it or, you know, um, hear, you know, through things like your podcast or, or what have you, right? And those, those, individuals with IBD, you know, they just go to, you know, patients.charleshealth.com and they can get their free resilience assessment, sign up for their navigator just straight out of the gate. But we're recognizing that really where the benefit is to all stakeholders, and this goes back to that value-based care, is for us to really kind of partner with large practices mm-hmm. that are seeing high volumes of of patients who are maybe even in at-risk contracts that want their patients to be able to address these disease-interfering management behaviors because it's going to save them on the other end. So we're, you know, we have a lot of relationships with those groups. Honestly, even the academic medical centers can't keep up with their mental health volume, even if they have health psychologists. Like, you know, I was at Northwestern for a while, you know, there's four health psychologists there, for example, but even they can't keep up with the needs and the demands of these patients, right? And and not everyone needs to see a psychologist either. So from a value, again, being able to put these patients that health systems are seeing into trellis to save the people who have you know more complex you know one on one they need a doctoral level yeah. mental health provider. So so that's the other sort of strategy that we've been kind of doing. You know, we'd love to work in the pharma space a little bit. Um certainly with the payers as you have successfully done. Um it's a it's it's harder to get into that because of the type of um, philosophy that we're offering
0: mm-hmm. and, and that we're not But going you to- have clear but you- But you have a clear ability to have a distribution channel through the GI practices. And I I would imagine, Lori that the private practices are going to be in need of your services even more than the academic institutions. Absolutely. You know, Northwestern may have four psychologists, (laughs) but most GI practices have zero. So, (laughs) you know, I can see and I like the fact that you're not disintermediating the care that the doctor so you provide information back to the patient's physician
1: yep so the way we've set it up is obviously the patient has to agree um, but when they sign up um, they um we notify as long as the patient agrees we notify the provider that the patient is a member of trellis and the provider also gets the opportunity to opt in to receive information right because we we recognize that not all providers I mean I personally think they should but not all providers want to hear all that information but um, yeah so the provider has a dashboard where they can track who their patients wow. are enrolled, what they're working on. Um, we do have all sorts of notifications that you can kind of customize and set up for yourself. Like, do you want to know when your patient has rising abdominal pain for several days? You know, we have that sort of the ability to, to, to track. Um, if you as a provider recommended your patients start on uh, a you know, maybe you—they're pushed the content that your patient needs an EKG, so that if you're not even an IBD specialist, <laughs> right, you might still be able to feel a little more comfortable in managing that IBD patient in the community because Trellis has that um, those guardrails in place around up-to-date gold standard best practices. And again, this is where that those quality metrics
0: come in, right? I see. Okay. Well, my final question, you know, this, this, this show is all about value. So yes. let's end this show with a focus on how behavioral health adds value, not only to the health plans and the, and the payers, but to the providers and the patients. So put your value hat on yeah. and uh, give us your concept as to how, what you're doing both at Mount Sinai and what you're doing with Trellis. Are adding value.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. We are the way that val- I th- I think of value, right, is the ability to for patients and providers to have a relationship in which each of them is um, moving towards healing, right? And that is for me both mucosal healing, but also emotional healing, because when that happens, both patients and providers are happier and healthier, right? I mean, provider burnout is a whole nother conversation, right? And so the value here is that we're we are actually helping patients get more out of their visits. Execute between visits so that when they are visiting with their provider, it's, it's much more productive and value can be created and, you know, not so focused on all the barriers to executing on treatment plans that happen because of human factors. So I think that's one area of value. The other is, you know, and you've done a lot of research on this too, is that engagement of, of patients, right? Because providers can take the horse to water, but if the patient does not engage in self-management skills, mm-hmm. the, the provider gets dinged on their poor outcomes but it's, you know, it's sort of like my parents were both teachers and it's like, you know, are they responsible here for all the things going on at home Mm -hmm. (laughs) on their standardized tests? And I think the same thing we do for providers is we hold them to these metrics when there's a whole bunch of factors that are outside of their control. And and that's what, you know, both what we do at Mount Sinai, we're there to support the providers and making sure the patient moves from A to B and get rid of all those, those barriers. And that's what Trellis is trying to do as well.
0: Well, You've, you've embarked upon uh, a new phase of your career, and I wish you all the luck in the world with this. I, I certainly do. I think it's, it's very, very important for the care of these patients that their behavioral health needs are addressed. I thank you very much for coming on the show today. And so in addition to thanking you, I'm going to thank the audience for tuning in. Uh, you can learn more about the show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNOW Radio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.